Welcome to the Inside Talent Podcast. This is a podcast for curious talent professionals where we'll interview global leaders from early talent, recruitment, human resources, diversity, and inclusion. My name's Adriana, and I'll be bringing you guests from a host of backgrounds, people from Fortune 500 companies, top-tier law firms, professional services, rapidly growing startups, universities, education providers, and disruptive technologists. We'll be talking through the ins and outs of talent management, what's worked, what's not worked, the successes, failures, and challenges along the way. Whether it's scaling a summer internship program nationwide, or the challenges of managing a large distributed team, or the journey that these global leaders took in their careers, and trust us, some of these will surprise you. On today's episode of Inside Talent, we'll be chatting with Natalie Runyon. Natalie is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion Content Strategy at Thomson Reuters. Natalie started her career in finance, working in risk management for the large investment bank, Goldman Sachs. She's now an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and she speaks to her own personal experiences that have shaped her career in DNI and how organizations can further optimize their talent pools and pipelines to be more diverse and inclusive. Natalie, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Very excited to have you on. I'm happy to be here. So to start off, I would love to get an overview as to you and your career so far, what your current role is, how you got there, what you studied at university to get there. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to try and be brief here because I have a 20-year career. And and so currently, I work at Thomson Reuters in the brand marketing organization covering talent, inclusion, and culture issues. I have to say that this is the closest I think I will ever get to my dream job. Yeah, wow. And because it's both personally fulfilling and professionally fulfilling, I really do feel like when I go home at night that I am really uh, making an effort to make the world a better place, particularly for underrepresented groups, uh, because that's where my passion lies. And, you know, working with uh, people who look like me, so I am a uh, white female, uh, to really give more of an appreciation of what underrepresented groups walking it, what it feels like to walk in their shoes. So with my current role, this is the closest that I've ever gotten to uh, feeling like I'm doing that and, and making progress in that direction. So I studied uh, 20 years ago, uh, international trade and finance at LSU. I was born in uh, right outside of New Orleans in Louisiana. And when I was in undergrad, I was looking for a one-way ticket out of Louisiana. And my ticket was an internship with the CIA. And yes, it is the CIA uh, between my junior and senior year. And during my internship that summer, I was offered a full-time job after I graduated, and I immediately said yes and had secured my one-way ticket out. Um, I don't think I ever really intended on working in government service for that long. I stayed five years, um, because mostly because they were willing to pay for my MBA at GW. And so during that five-year process, I was also going to school part-time. And then after I finished my uh, MBA with a concentration in finance, just like everybody that 
usually uh, graduates with a concentration in finance. They want to go into an investment banking career, and so that's what I sought to do. Uh, it was right after uh, September 11th um, in 2001 and 2002, so there, the job market wasn't that great. And in the D.C. area, there was really the only people that wanted to hire me were government contractors, and I didn't really want to be back in um you know, government service as a contractor. So I broadened my search and that took me to New York City where I met, where I am today. So I moved to New York City for a job at Goldman Sachs working in the global office of global security where I was there for nine years. And then um, in 2008, I had the opportunity to do a paid public fellowship. Uh, so I took a one-year sabbatical uh, to work on the rebuilding of the Gulf Coast. And being from given the fact that I am from Louisiana, um, that was a very meaningful project to me. And I have to say, from a career standpoint, it was a major inflection point in my career because it is really where I understood that not everybody is treated equally in this country. If you think back to Hurricane Katrina in 2005, I was absolutely mortified that there were citizens of the United States, mostly poor people of color, that were left outside, hot, hungry, and with no place to go. And I could not believe that I was living in this wonderful country and we were treating our uh, citizens that way. So that left a profound impact on me. And I do have to say that, that it probably was the planted seed of my passion for really wanting to um, help elevate and advance uh, the, the careers uh, for, for people of color and other underrepresented groups. So back in 2008, I was able to do this paid fellowship, did the rebuilding work, and one of the biggest leadership lessons that I ever took away was the first time that I went down there, I was so excited that I was getting to do this. I made my first trip to Louisiana from New York, and I had this whole plan uh, that I was going to pitch to uh, nonprofit organizations on the ground. I thought I had all the answers and that I would be welcomed as one of them if you, because I had been born there. And in my first meeting, that was, I was sorely mistaken. Um, it was an incident where I was completely humbled uh, because I walked in um, arrogant, thinking that I knew the answers and I knew how to solve the problems in rebuilding the Gulf, uh, New Orleans. And the first meeting that I had with somebody, uh, with a leader, nonprofit leader there, basically told me to sit down, shut up, and listen. And, the, and I am so grateful that she did that because it quite frankly humbled me in a, in a situation where I needed to be humbled. Um, I, did, I had no clue what people on the ground had been going through, the trauma that they had experienced, and what they needed the most was somebody to listen because people in the community were just as traumatized as other members of the community community. So really the mental health and the and to the 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 dealing with the trauma after losing everything like that even three and a half years later was was still quite um intense. So anyway, I'm going to move it along here. Uh I went back to uh Goldman 
really profoundly changed as a human being. Um, it's one of the greatest leadership lessons that I've ever learned. And I was at um, Goldman for about three more years. And then I, uh, in between my time at Goldman and my before I started my time at Thomson Reuters, I had the opportunity to work full-time and really build up uh, or rebrand myself as a solopreneur. I had gotten a leadership uh, coaching certification, and I really wanted to go all in on uh, coaching women to advance uh, their careers to the head of public and corporate institutions, because I really did fundamentally believe that women can, could, can and, and, and will change the world. So the problem with that is there was so much more to actually doing the coaching. Um, so I was not only the coach, but the CEO, the CMO, the COO, the CFO, and I was really burnt out from doing all those different roles and not the coaching. So I decided that um, that wasn't for me, at least solopreneurship was not for me, and um, I decided to go back into uh, working in a big corporation, and that's when I got the job at Thomson Reuters. I was running security uh, for about three years, and um, then I was able to earn a new role uh, helping our strategic account uh, front client-facing salespeople with the operations and strategies uh, for those strategic accounts on the law firm side and the uh, corporate legal side. I was there for three years, and along the way, I did a side hustle, I guess you could say, volunteer leadership opportunity um, called Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law. And it was an opportunity to uh, focus on women's advancement in, in legal. And um, that is ultimately what, because of that, because I had committed to helping to research that strategy, launch the program and execute it, that's what led me to being appointed in the role that I'm in that I'm in today, which I've been um, starting at the beginning of 2018. And then this year, my remit has expanded beyond the legal industry to focus on uh, tax and accounting and some of the other um, industries that we serve. Wow, that is a pretty incredible and impressive career and it's very um, amazing to hear your story, particularly I think the time that you spent um, in Louisiana and how that affected your career trajectory so far. Um, So now I guess you, you are, you do have this role at Thomson Reuters and how do you say, um, and I know you mentioned that that's very exciting for you because it combines the um, your personal and professional goals. What do you think? Do you think there was one moment in your career that sort of led you to that, to where you are now? Or was there one defining moment that really thought, this is where I want to end up? Well, I pretty much have managed my career through a process of elimination and a, lot, and a lot of experimentation through a lot of like side gigs, side hustles, or volunteer leadership to determine if that if I thought that that was a career option or a career path direction that I wanted to go in. And so I would say the one defining moment was back in 2005 
uh, during Hurricane Katrina. Like that profoundly moved me. Certainly being humbled um, my first day, um, you know, in New Orleans as part of my public service fellowship. Uh, but I would say the other defining moment for me was um, in 2013, I had some... Um, Personal and professional challenges when I first started uh, in, in, a, in a new role, um, there were about three levels of management removed over a six-month period. And so all of a sudden, starting in a new organization and in the first you know eight or nine months having three levels of management, it was really tough to kind of get feel like I, I could get my feet wet. I mean, in a lot of case, in a lot of ways it felt like I was constantly in quicksand, right? because I was having to prove myself over and over and over um, and prove the value that I could. And it was a very kind of tumultuous time because I was uh, running security. Uh, I was hired to run the New York region. And then very quickly, I found myself running the Americas region. And that combined with my personal uh, challenges with my first child. He had some special needs and we had to go through a multi-month process to get him diagnosed in the right uh, support system that he needed. Um, it was, I felt like I was in quicksand both in my professional life and in my uh, personal life in a lot of ways. And so I almost had, so the stress was so intense that I had I, I basically had a, a, a meltdown, not like I didn't have a nervous breakdown, but it was just a critical turning point that I cannot stay um, in the job that I am yeah. and, and, and be existing in the way that I am. And so it really kind of chart, that really was the foundational moment where it was like, you know, security is really not for me. I like to be open. I like to, I'm pretty much like an open book. And, you know, that mindset's very defensive, right? Because you're always protecting against potential threats, right? So it's kind of a defensive mindset. And I wanted to be more on offense, if you will. Um, and it took me about another 18 months to find the right role uh, from that. Um, and in between, I had my second child. So that was part of the reason why it took a, 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 a little bit longer as well. But that was an, another kind of defining moment where I knew I had this personal passion for diversity and inclusion, and I had always been doing it for as a volunteer leader through uh, business resource group and, you know, women at TR here, but it was like, I really need to make a, a huge move and, and be very intentional about making the move. So as part of that, I really wanted to get into talent management. And so as part of, to build my qualifications, that's when I went back to NYU and earned a certificate in leadership in organizational development. Um, so I would at least have the academic credential and then I could start, you know, having continue to build out my professional experience. What's really interesting interesting is when I've interviewed for those jobs, I never got them, <laughs> which was um, probably wow. um, a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I learned a ton about how to run an organization, transform an organization when I was in security and I was going through that very stressful time um, because there was some layoffs and, you know, just gaining that experience as a leader. 
um, and constantly having to adjust to changing expectations and situations. So, um, and then that's kind of what t- took me through that um, the j- first job that I had in the legal industry running strategy and operations for our strategic accounts, they were looking to rebuild that function. And that was the transferable skill from running security in the Americas that I was able to leverage in order to get that first role. So I had I never had that ex- that that experience, um, you know, when I was running the Americas region in security, I'm not sure I would have even been gotten the job within the legal business that ultimately led to the role that I have today, which, um, you know, like I said, I absolutely love. Yeah. Well, there's a, um, there's a few things that you spoke to in that, that I think are really interesting that I'd like to unpack and particularly for people that are, um, in the talent and human resources industry, you spoke about uh, volunteer leadership and side gigs and side hustles, whether that's within the organisation that you're working in or separately to that and how that sort of helped you take the next steps and set you up for whatever your next role will be and actually figure out what you do want to do and what you don't want to do. Obviously, we know one of the challenges um, for everyone in their career, but particularly for people in early on in their career is figuring out what you like and what you don't like. What are some of the, I know you sort of, you mentioned, um, you know, working with like employee resource groups and taking on those leadership roles with um, within the different organisations that you've taken on. What's some of the advice or the insights that you have around side gigs, volunteer leadership and how to really harness those to be able to use them for the next step of your career? Well, I, I personally um, have benefited a lot. And had I not done the volunteer leadership, I know for a fact that I would not be the, in the job that I have now. And I would not have actually gotten the job that I had previously working in um, working in legal you know, operations and strategy. And let me tell you a quick story to demonstrate why. Um, we had a new president at the legal business um, back in 2015. That was the first year that I was the women at TR uh, co-chair for the New York City chapter. And uh, the president of the legal business at the time was had relocated to New York. And um, in one of the town halls where she was being introduced, she said, I want to get involved with women at TR. And I was like, ding, 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 as I was listening, because I'm like, okay, I'm going to go up to her and I'm going to reach out. And I'm going to say, hey, that. I'd love to set up time with you to have a chat about it, right? So yeah. I did that. I happened to be interviewing for the role, for the operations and strategy role at the time. And at the end of that meeting with um, with the new president, of the legal business, I mentioned it. And she was like, you know what? I am meeting with our head of sales because at the time the it was the operations and strategy rolled up into the sales organization. And my um, potential manager was a direct report of the head of sales. Okay. And she was like, I'm going to introduce you and I'm going to mention that you're applying for this role. Now, I had I not been the co-chair of women at TR, I would never have been in the room to have that conversation with the president of the legal business to then be introduced to the head of sales, yeah, which wow. was my skip level manager, right? So that's just to kind of illuminate the opportunity Absolutely. that volunteer leadership presents. Yeah. And so once you earn the, a leadership role within the opportunity, you have to be proactive about leveraging it. That puts you in a different type of conversation with senior leaders. And you have, and so here's the one mistake that many people can make. They don't take ownership of the fact that 
they have the authority to then as a chair or a co-chair or a leader with a, of a business resource group to reach out to the senior leaders and have a conversation about what changes they would like to see, what type of commercial value can this business resource group have, uh, how, can, how can they have a conversation about how can the business resource group help that potential leader? Just asking that question alone, I just took it upon myself and took ownership to go and have those conversations in person, acting, asking that question proactively rather than trying to, you know, figure it out with people, you know, at my level. So I would say that, and so that put me in the room that made pe- very senior people know who I am, know my name. And so it was a great way to cultivate relationships. And in fact, um, those relationships have helped me because, you know, during times of transition and um, restructuring and, uh, and, and that always kind of come with, uh, you know, layoffs, those relationships have been really um, critical uh, in, in, in me making, being uh, okay, uh, you know, after the restructuring. Now, I have gone through a layoff and it sucked. Um, I wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, but, you know, so I've been on both sides, right? I've been on the uncertain time and been fine. And I've also been part of the uncertain time and then, you know, been on the receiving end of, um, you know, my role being eliminated. So, so those relationships, um, those senior relationships in particular become very critical. Um, when you, and because, and when decisions are being made, you're not in the room, but you have someone who is, who can be an advocate for you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's a really key point that everyone, I'm sure everyone knows, but, um, particularly plays into the diversity and inclusion aspect, the idea of relationships, because as you said, people can be an advocate for you and they can, you know, help you find the next step in your career, whatever stage you're at. And one of the things that I think people like yourself are trying to do, but also um, I've seen throughout my career is foster those relationships for people that perhaps might not have typically had them um, in sort of, I guess, conventional ways, whether that's through alumni networks at school or whatever it may be. Um, because as we know, they're so important to have that support network throughout your career. From a diversity and inclusion perspective, what are some of the things that you've seen um, to work to be able to build networks and relationships um, for typically underrepresented groups within organisations, but also beyond that? Yeah, so one of the first things that I noticed when I stepped into the co-chair role uh, for the Women's Network here in New York City uh, about four or five years ago was that we weren't having a lot of women of color, particularly black women, show up at our programming. And so, um, you know, I didn't really kind of understand why. So I went to the head of the Black Employee Network here and um, who happened to be a woman at at that time here in New York City. And I asked her and basically, you know, she was pretty frank with me and, um, and said, well, your programs aren't really serving our needs. And I was like, okay. Um, and up to that point, I had kind of understood um, women's advancement and women's leadership uh, and, and really thought that the needs and the experiences were pretty monolithic and universal. And so what I learned from a series of conversations starting with that one is that that is so not true, that in many cases, um, women of color face 
much more uh, bias than I as a you know white woman um, experience. I also observed that the meta narrative for women's leadership was very much through a privileged white woman's story. So think about lean in, right? Think about um, yeah, absolutely. So so you know, and I and I. And I don't think I would have had those many aha moments had I not started to ask those questions and be curious. And so um, after that conversation, I said, okay, what can we do um, to fix that? And to what can I do to help, you know, women of color, um, you know, get what they need um, in order to advance in the company? And so that led to a two-year learning journey, if you will, on really understanding the unique experiences of, of women of color um, from a black woman's perspective, from a um, Latina's perspective, from a um, you know, lesbian perspective, from an um, Asian Pacific American perspective. And so um, what kind of came up with that. It was like, what kind of came out of that two year was a um, reverse mentoring program where, uh, and this was a collaboration of all the business resource groups, where we ran a program with C with with um, CEO minus two level people, so they were managers of managers, and we pitched the idea to um, the head of that organization, saying we'd love to run this reverse mentoring program with your leadership team, with the intention of um, really giving an in-depth experience of the leadership to understand the unique challenges that women of color face, but also to for these uh, mentors who are the women of color to be a sounding board for different areas of diversity inclusion. Um, so for this pilot project, I had gotten the commitment from leaders within the uh, business resource groups in New York and London to participate in this as mentors. And really the, the what's in it for them was the fact that they get to have a different type of conversation in the room with a pretty senior person. So um, in addition to, you know, wanting to, you know, help um, women in their own community to advance, but there was also a kind of a risk associated, right? They're putting themselves on the line by really, um, by agreeing to participate, being matched with someone that they may know by name, but not really, but and so you know, I give the, um, the the mentors a lot of credit because they had to really trust um, and had to have a level of uh, vulnerability and authenticity that was really critical. And um, we did in to, order to measure progress. That reverse mentoring program went over three months, and in order to measure progress, we did a survey at the beginning and a survey at the end. And I was so shocked at the level of change of perspective that three meetings in a few month period had on the leader's understanding on the challenges that women face, but also women of color and what their specific role is in being an example uh, and a champion of diversity inclusion, but also coaching their their direct reports and coaching their their managers of 
working with their director reports to work with their the the to work with the their direct reports, if you will, yeah. to un, to really um, help them uh, be a, a champion of diversity inclusion. And so it was re- a really rewarding experience. It had many starts and stops. It it morphed um, in that two. Like I said, it was a two year journey, but that was really something tangible that I was really proud of. And that was all just volunteer leadership and passion, right, and a curiosity for really learning. So that and um, and I've been able to leverage that in my current role. But had I not gone on that journey, I would have never had the level of understanding that I have now um, and really understanding what I can do and um, to help advocate for underrepresented groups and help educate others, leaders um, who look like me about what they can do to also understand, be aware, but also to behave in a way that leads to change. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point, and it leads to something that I'm interested in your perspective on around um, everyone in the organisation, not just people who specifically have a title of being responsible for diversity and inclusion or being part of an employee resource group or being even in human resources. Every single person in the organisation having that responsibility and that training um, to bring about diversity and inclusion and to foster that in many different ways. What are some of the ways that you've seen um, at Thomson Reuters but also at other organisations that people have been able to do that? Perhaps, you know, non-specific, non-structured or not a specific program or whatever, um, something that, you know, isn't necessarily, there's, you're doing a big song and dance about it, but you're able to foster an environment that's more inclusive and more accepting for, the, for a wide variety of people. What are some of the best practices or successes that you've had around that? Well, I think, you know, the the reverse mentoring program that I just mentioned, um, I think yeah, is absolutely. a program that that is 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 one to model. Uh because, you know, in my own journey, in my own learning journey, really kind of understanding, I didn't sit in one two hour workshop, right? And then I and then all of a sudden I was um anointed and and I knew totally. everything that I I needed to know, right? That it was an ex- experience. And what what I loved about the um, the reverse mentoring program is that the learning happened over a series of conversations. And so I think that organizations that I've seen get this right um, are understand that and understand that this that the learning and the ahas and and the awareness to you know, the, the awareness that to action, to ally, to accomplice is a journey and have, and, and organizations that get it right have to provide those forums, uh, in over, you know, as part of that journey. Um, I think some of the other things that I, that I've seen is there's a law firm, Weil Gottschall, that created uh, a whole brand uh, for their allyship program. It's called Upstander, and they call it the Upstander Guide. And there's four different categories, but one is like speak up, listen up, talk up, and I forget the fourth one. But they have specific actions uh, listed underneath one of those categories, right? And then they have programming um, around it uh, to give allies the opportunity to 
ex- experiment with some of those um, saying. So, you know, an example uh, could be in a group setting, um, there is one person who is a member of an underrepresented group who keeps getting cut off. You know, an ally um, is observes this and but doesn't know what to say, right? So how do you politely, if you're not the most senior person in the room, how do you politely intervene on that person's behalf and say, oh, I noticed that... Um, you know, that the person uh, has gotten cut off a couple times and hasn't been able to finish, you know, um, his or her thoughts. So I'd love to hear from, you know, this individual now. And, and, but, but you have to have some live experience to draw on, even if it's in kind of a, a manufactured space, safe space, if you will, to really kind of practice that and hear yourself saying those words, right? So I think those, I like that those idea, the, are, are the really critical. Safe space idea. Um, I think that's really important and it's it's that idea of the, the practice over time. It's the repetition. It's continuing to have those. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I also had to come to terms with um, some things about myself that were, that I didn't like. I mean, I remember, um, you know, this is almost 10 years ago and I've only been telling this story for two years because it, it it's, I have felt a lot of shame, but I was one of the, I used to, I live in the East Village in New York City, and um, on my block, there is uh, a halfway house that is uh, for, um, you know, young adult uh, men, and a lot of them are uh, men of color. And I noticed myself... um, about 10 years ago, when I would be the only person in a suit leaving my apartment at 7 a.m. walking on the block, um, I was the only one out on the street when uh, they were, you know, kind of tidying up outside. And I realized that I was holding, clamping my arm down on my bag and crossing the street to avoid them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, oh, what's that about? I mean, that was like a default response, right? And, um, and so I was like, oh my goodness, this is like bias. I don't know where it showed up, but just my physiological reaction on seeing them, I, you know, once I became aware of it, I was like, okay, I'm going to make a commitment to change this. And so what I ended up doing is when, um, I felt that physical reaction, you know, every morning, uh, during the work week, I made sure to, uh, not cross the street, relax my arm on my bag and walk past and say, good morning. How are you? Have a wonderful day. Yeah, the I series like of those small actions over the course of like a couple of months changed my physiological reaction. But you know what it took? It took intention, commitment, and discipline, quite frankly. But you can change. It just, you have to be conscious of it and you have to be intentional about it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point about discipline and commitment and intention, and that has to happen. Obviously, the example you you gave is something that um, I'm sure everyone has experienced in different aspects in their life, that idea of kind of the unconscious behaviours. Um, but those type of things, that what you said, the discipline and the intention and the commitment, that's something that needs to happen at all levels of the organisation to actually change the dial around diversity and inclusion. I wanted to hear some of your thoughts around, um, I guess, looking to the future of where you see diversity and inclusion within organisations. I know you've spoken to some of the successes so far and some of the successes in your career and 
and how that's led you to the role that you have. But taking a more broader perspective, where, where do you see, particularly in the talent space, um, where do you see diversity and inclusion? How do you see it looking in five to ten years? What do you think will happen? What do you think there's what work do you think there is still to be done within organisations and also, you know, within schools and other institutions as well to bring about the change that we need? I think we need to centre the experiences of people of colour. And that could be in the workplace, that could be in academic institutions, that could be in nonprofits, that can be in faith institutions. But I think we need to center the experiences of people of color uh, because too often they go um, unrecognized. And, you know, let's be frank, like talking about race and ethnicity is not something that is easily done with this country's history. So. Um, so if we're centering the experiences and we're doing our own proactive learning, um, not putting all of the responsibility on people of color to educate, uh, people in the majority, white people, um, then, and, you know, white people need to be proactive about doing our own learning, um, and really kind of understanding how for white people, um, we don't see our whiteness as a race, right? Um, And, you know, when I read White Fragility, it completely just like changed my paradigm on, on, on this. But, but I think, you know, back to your question, it's really centering the, the experiences of people of color. And if we center the experiences of people of color and are giving them the support that they need, I think the rest, and and we're prioritizing, um, you know, getting people the support that, that they need, then it, then it's going to naturally infiltrate the rest of the culture of the organization. Now, part of the, if by centering people of color, that that could, you know, one of the downsides of it is the potential resentment. So there also has to be an honest dialogue about that and, uh, and, and for people to um, have forums to, to ask questions if they're starting to really, if, if that's starting to come up for them, not to push it back down because that's not going to help. Um, but if I had to, if I had to, you know, um, synthesize it, I would say center the experiences of people of color and that's really getting on the inclusion piece, right? Working, not, not, not helping get providing people of color and other underrepresented group, the support that they need, but also, um, helping to educate, um, you know, working on the inclusion piece, which is like kind of everybody else and, and, and really being almost more of a priority on the inclusion piece versus the diversity. Because without, without, if you don't have inclusion, you can't have diversity in a meaningful way. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I think that's something that that um, really requires that commitment and the dedication that it was speaking to earlier around, around inclusion. Because as we all know, diverse talent at all levels of, um, organizations is there and as in it's out there to find um but it's a matter of creating environments that are inclusive so that people want to go and work in these organizations and in turn the organizations want to have those people working for them as well what are some of the um from an inclusion perspective what are some of the things that i think 
you've seen could be brought about perhaps earlier or organisations can be doing with, you know, entry-level talent or campus talent to foster that sense of inclusivity from the get-go? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know there there is um, a, a, an assumption that you know once we get people in the door, then our job is done. Um, when I would argue, saying saying no, that's the easy part. Um, and so I think what else from a talent perspective, it's really working with your. Um, your people managers, right? And giving them the understanding um, and that to approach each individual uh, and their career needs um, uniquely as a unique individual. And I don't mean just people of underrepresented groups. I mean, anybody, every, anybody, right? Um, people come with, um, totally. you know, different backgrounds, you know, not every area of inclusion or diversity inclusion of underrepresented groups is obvious um, just by looking. So, um, and, but really kind of taking the time to say, okay, um, here are, are the objectives of the role. Um, you know, what are, where are you thinking about yourself in, you know, two to three years time? How, what are your thoughts about what can I be doing or what key experiences can you be given and your, can you be getting in your given role now that you think can help you in your career later? And not really having this dynamic about saying, oh, if I, if somebody leaves my team, then I am in trouble or, or assuming that someone is going to stay on your team forever. <laughs> um, so, so if we start from the assumption that people will leave and people will grow and the time that it, that, that person is reporting to you is the time to maximize their potential um, their success in the role, because guess what? If they're successful, that means that you're successful, right? As them, as a people manager, totally. as a leader. So I think those, um, I think that perspective, the leadership, you know, people management aspects are really critical part of inclusion, because if you're approaching um, it as a unique individual, then, um, you know, that becomes a leadership best practice, not a diversity inclusion best practice. I think people too, all too often think that, you know, this diversity inclusion skill set is something that I need to have over here when in reality, it's just how you're showing up and how you're interacting with your people. And the things that it takes to be a great leader are the same behaviors that it takes to be a great diversity inclusion leader. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, very true. And I think that um, it is a definitely a uh, benchmark for success and that's something that all people managers need to be looking to and organizations need to be thinking about that from a um you know what are your kpis what are you trying to achieve and having that included um in those benchmarks and standards can be ways to continue to move the dial and move things forward natalie i wanted to ask you um if you could wave a magic wand or, you know, completely blue sky thinking, change something in the industry around talent, diversity, inclusion, what organisations do around this um, and what the current status quo is, what would you do? I think I would do two things. I would um, centre the experiences of people of colour in organizations, and then I would also uh, take 
the d- reporting relationship of diversity inclusion out of HR and put it more into the yeah. business operations reporting through a COO or something like that. Because I think um, there is a you know paradigm uh, within corporations that. Diverse, that diversity inclusion or HR, that's the head of HR's responsibility, right? Yeah. So um, they're going to tell me what I need to do when I need to be a diversity inclusion leader or, you know, be, be inclusive for talent versus like really kind of looking at it as part of the um, formula, if you will, for being a great leader in general. Yeah. And really kind of embedding behaviors within the day-to-day operations of the organization. Yeah. So those are two things that I would do. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that that's something that hopefully in five to 10 years time, we'll be able to see that, that it's not just a function that exists within HR. It's something that um, is embedded within the entire organization. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciated all of your insights and super excited to see what you'll be doing um, further within the organisation at Thomson Reuters. Uh, Loved having you on and excited to see what's next. Thank you. Thank you, Adriana. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to our Inside Talent podcast. Subscribe to stay updated for our conversations with talent leaders.